Hey everybody, this is Brent Watkinson with Everyday Artist. My guest is David Almeida. David is a software project manager that has done just about every job in the business of software support, implementation, and development. As much as he enjoys the world of software, his true passion lies with ceramics, and to be more specific, producing utilitarian household vessels such as cups, mugs, plates, platters, etc. on an electric potter's wheel. As many listeners to this podcast may know, I've been writing code privately and professionally for many years, all the while being an illustrator, gallery painter, and educator. I was a licensed Apple iPhone and iPad developer for five years, and later worked for a national company writing algorithms to manipulate search result pages for car dealerships, among other tasks at that company. And, similar to David, I graduated college with more credit hours in ceramics than drawing and painting. I really enjoyed the ceramics. As you can correctly surmise, David and I had a lot in common to talk about during our pleasant conversation. David's Instagram handle is at Walnut Creek Pottery, all one word, no spaces. You can see his wares on my website, brentwatkinson.com, as well as his Instagram name. Please click that subscribe button wherever you listen to this podcast, and of course it is free to subscribe software project manager slash potter david almeida let's get into it you divide your time into two what i think are incredibly creative endeavors and some people may or may not understand one of those endeavors which is the computer software side of what you do people that listen to this podcast know that I was a programmer and Apple developer for many years that is one of the most creative things I've ever done in my life and I think people either understand that or they don't so tell me how your creativity in the computer software side ties into your creativity in making ceramics, which you basically are a potter that throws pots on the wheel primarily. It's true, yes. So I fell into doing software by accident. I was in a situation where I needed a job and through connections was able to get in at a software company here in Kansas City doing support. So I actually started off doing... What does support mean? Support, yep. So I started off uh, answering the phones for uh, users of the software, people who had purchased and were using the software and had questions um, ranging from how do I do this task within the software all the way through uh, bug reporting and installation procedures. So I did that for about two years and I got to a situation or I got to a... Uh, a point where um, I was asked to actually come off of the phones, not because I wasn't doing a good job, 
uh, but because uh, my managers could see that I had more potential than just you know question and answer type of work. Um, so I actually moved over into the development side of software. Um, there really are kind of three tiers or three kind of legs to software. There is the development of software, which is coding, writing code to execute functions that perform per- perform things within the software. There is implementation, so sales and getting that software stood up and working in the user's environment, whether that's a individual's you know personal computer that they install software on and it runs. Usually that goes through an installation wizard and it's nice and easy. Or more on the corporate side of doing some sort of an enterprise software that's used by many, many users across multiple PCs, across multiple environments. That would be more of what I would call implementation. And then the third leg of software really is the support and ongoing enhancement of that software. So I have had the pleasure of working in all three. Started out, like I said, in support. Uh, moved into development and did that for several years. I was not a software engineer. I didn't actually write the code. Um, I was even, if you want to talk about creativity, I was even more on the creative side. My role was envisioning what features we wanted to provide. And features means a discrete thing within the software that performs some sort of an action or a function. Would you call yourself a liaison in between the code <laughs> writers and the people that were asking for features? There, there's a movie from uh, either the late 90s or early 2000s called Office Space. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, when they're interviewing yes. people to lay them off, there's one man and his job is to take the requirements from the customers and take it to the engineers. And I joked that that was my job at that time. Uh, really, it was much more involved. But yes, I was responsible for working with what are called stakeholders, people who care about what the software does internally within the company or externally, um, a select group of, of clients that were considered super users and had a vested interest in the software. And I would work with both of those groups to get an understanding of what it is that they wanted that software to do, balance that off of the business need and what was reasonable to deliver, and then take that uh, those set of Uh, what we would call business requirements, and translate those into a user-centric or a user-focused set of user stories. And so if anyone's familiar with agile software development, these are all tenets of that, where we would go through and say, as a specific type of person, I want the software to do this discrete task so that expected outcome. And following that pattern, really helps software designers, which is more of what my job was, it helps us to understand overall how does the user interact with this specific function, as well as overall how are they working with the software as a full application. Tell us how you started doing ceramics and when. Mm, I got to think back. Think way, way back to the dawn of time. (laughs) That's when ceramics started. So you were right there. <laughs> I was, I was, man, I was one of the first people to said, hey, this squishy stuff, You're, we can make stuff out of it. You said, let's vitrify this. You know a word, <laughs> sir. You know a word. Yes. So, um, so actually, I, I was first introduced to ceramics. I went to a very small high school in the western part of Kansas City, one of the suburbs. And How many did you graduate with? That'll oh, give us a gosh. little bit of an idea. 110. Okay. 110. I graduated with 30, so I got you. Okay. Yeah, well, <laughs> fair enough. But fair I'm enough. a lot older than you. There weren't that many people around when I graduated. 
when I was a freshman in high school, I lived in Virginia in a suburb of D.C., and we had 5,000 students in my high school. Wow. So when I moved here to Kansas City, oh boy, there you it go. felt like, so you're talking about perspective, right? Yes. That felt like I was at a tiny school because there were 110 kids in my graduating class. Graduation ceremonies took about an hour and a half. In high school, I was a junior in high school, interested in art, you know, drawing, painting, you know, the odd sculpture here and there. Did you take art classes I in did. high school? Okay. I did, All yes. Right. But I didn't really have a good direction, right? What is the medium that I wanted to work in? I didn't care. I was just a high schooler, right? So I took a um, just general, I mean, the, this high school wasn't even large enough to have discrete medium-centered classes, right? There was not a painting class. There was not a lettering class. It was just art. We did a, a segment on clay. I think it was like a four, four or six-week, you know, segment on clay. And uh, we did, you know, pinch pots and hand building and just really working with just your hand on a table with clay. And, uh, you know, press, you know, pressing the clay and mold making and just that sort of stuff. But we had one pottery wheel. It was a really old thing. It just barely worked. Was it electric? It was. It was electric. Most pottery wheels are electric. The, the kick wheel, I think, is what you're referring to where that's powered by uh, your leg kicking a, a heavy stone. Imagine like a, like a mill. Right. Imagine a, a mill grind, grinding uh, flour, right? That heavy circular stone that's spinning. That acts like a flywheel. Exactly. Yes. Which so, the electric has also, but it's powered by a motor that turns that flywheel. So Instead of your legs. Yeah. Yes. So it was an electric wheel. It was a belt-driven electric wheel, groaned at the start, finally got up to speed. You've put any um, pressure on it. It would start slowing down because that motor was pretty old. I asked instead of doing hand building if I could if I could try the wheel and my teacher said sure go ahead I sat down and didn't know anything about how, how to prepare clay I think I literally just cut a chunk off of the block of clay that we were using and squished it onto the wheel head the flat spinning part that um, that gives you gives you the rotations to work against and just started playing around and I think maybe about an hour later uh, towards the end of class i had a passable bowl sitting on the on uh on that wheel so nobody showed you how to center nope. or open the clay which are the two major stand uh, that's the two processes yeah. yes yeah, yeah. Uh, no i had um i hadn't been shown my teacher so you just beat your way through it <sighs> yes yes i did but it was an amazing moment for me because at that point, it wasn't like artistic expression. It was, I am trying to figure out this task in front of me. But it clicked and it made sense. And I, you know, when you, when you start talking to people who really know a task, like chess players, when you start talking to someone that plays chess, they're not necessarily thinking of each individual piece of uh, a you know, chess piece they're thinking of the overall game that's going on and thinking of strategies and moving moving pieces ahead of time to position themselves well. As I was going through that process on the wheel, I was able to, and I was surprised that I was able to think out, if I'm doing this, here is how it will influence uh, the shape or it'll influence uh, some of the outcomes of, of uh, what I'm trying to do. And I had never really experienced that before. For me as a high schooler, 
sitting at a wheel, not knowing what I was doing, to have that clarity of thought, of being able to have you know a strategy and then execute on that was uh, a new experience for me. And of course, at the end of it, you know, the teacher came over was surprised. I didn't really realize at the time, like, oh, this is something that not everyone can do. Um, and I'm not saying that as like holier than thou, man, I'm so skilled. I'm saying that as as uh, I've as over the last 10, 15 years, 15 years now at this point, I've had an opportunity to interact with a lot of people who are interested in doing pottery, don't have the aptitude. Or like a buddy of mine who came over last week had an interest, had never really done it. He actually had aptitude very similar to what I experienced where he sat down for the first time at the wheel here at my house. And I showed him the process, went through the different steps, and then had him sit down. And I was right there talking him along the steps, but he was able to produce two pieces that were passable by the end of maybe an hour and a half, two hours of being at my house. See, that's great information because we're talking about information. You didn't have anything except the clay and the wheel in front of you and it took an hour and I had uh, a few good college instructors and the best ones would say okay gang come over here and those famous words watch this and I'm talking about sculpting welding you know writing a paragraph dancing not that I was a dancer bowling art throwing pots whatever it was but they'd say watch this because this works every time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important in any instruction. And you just proved it because it took you an hour to figure out the basics, which are very difficult until someone shows you. And then you imparted verbal and visual information to this person. Mm -hmm. And you cut their learning curve in a quarter. You cut it down to 15 minutes, basically, probably. So how what did you okay you you explained what you remembered about that first time where mm -hmm. you got the clay centered and you made a bolt it's called pulling so you you pulled your shape yes when you walked out of class where how how long was it before you could get back in and do it again mm -hmm. were you just on fire i i mean I, yeah i was i was buzzing buzzing after that like wow i found something that i'm good at and that I enjoy and, and actually has this tangible outcome at the end of, it, of the process, which I really appreciated. To go back quickly to software, it's all intangible. This all of the effort that you put in, the outcome, the product of what you have been working for is an intangible thing. And so while the process might be fulfilling at the end of it for me, it's, uh, I'm proud of what I've, what I've worked with other people to develop and, and to produce. Uh, but it doesn't hold the same weight in my mind as actually physically producing something. So in that moment, I realized I can do something and I have something to show. I can hold it in my hand and show afterwards. Uh, I think that was really impactful for me. I love digital artwork. I love digital painting. I wrote programs that make images, but it's the same thing. It's like, okay, well, boom, I just... I wrote this program and I can make 60 images per second, but they're not really there until I go to the guy with the expensive Giclée machine <laughs> mm -hmm. and you print them out and then you see them. But, and you're saying the same thing. I mean, it, you're, it's satisfying and it's interesting and you do the work, 
But when you're done, you know, you open that kill door, which is like Christmas. Yes. You look at your product and say, here's my products. Mm -hmm. And here's a surprise because this glaze had too much flux and it dripped down, but it affected the, the pot next to it. I didn't expect that. I wish I could do that again because it's beautiful. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. It, having that tactile experience at the end of the process, like even right now you're holding a mug that was hand thrown by... I'm checking the beautiful foot on the bottom of the mug, which mm -hmm. is the first thing I did when I walked into David's studio. I picked everything up and looked at the bottom of it. <laughs> and that's the sign of that you know what you're talking about. Yes, most, uh, you know, uh, there's a joke that, you know, pot potters judge other potters by their feet. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. so the, the mug that you were just holding there, right, that was made by a ceramic artist out of Mississippi, which is where I was originally from. I grew up military, so I moved around a lot, but Mississippi is where I'm from. I've got a, a mug here from an artist up in, I think they're from Michigan. I mean, th these, are, these are things that once created will last. I mean, th these are made out of stone. So these will last forever until they're ground to dust. But you can give these things away as gifts or sell them. And that motion is captured in the clay and held in tension forever. And that's, I don't know, just... That's beautiful and heavy. Beautiful. It is. I, I like that. And think about the anthropological ramifications of pottery. That's what we find from, dare I say, millions of years ago, whenever people were, you know, firing yeah. clay for the first time. Whatever the timeline is, you're absolutely right. That's mainly what uh, what ancient cultures are are known for is finding the bowls and the jars and such because it's stone and it will last forever. The metal will rust, you know, the, the wood will rot, clay's forever. That's very true. I'm looking at these mugs and I'm admiring them for many reasons. One of which is I can tell a human made them. Mm -hmm. I remember I was probably in my second semester and I thought, okay, I'm going to really polish this cup on the wheel or it was a bowl or a cup, I can't remember. But I thought, man, I'm just, I'm going to make this thing look so slick and smooth and cool. Mm -hmm. And I did. I got rid of basically, and I didn't know this until I saw it later. I got rid of every bit of human interaction that I had put on that clay. Mm -hmm. And I looked at it and I thought, oh, great. I just made something that looks like it came from a machine or a mold. And I never did it again. I love those finger marks, the sponge marks. There's a tool that we use called a rib that mm -hmm. you shape things with. And that's like a really interesting watercolor painting or a sculpture that still has, uh, if it's a metal sculpture, it's got the grinder marks on it. Or if it's a stone sculpture, you see where that chisel was breaking away the stone. So I really appreciate things that look like they were made by hand. There's, there's a certain value to the handmade aesthetic uh, that you're referring to there. There are some professional potters who strive to make work that looks uh, mass-produced, and they're very successful. But there is, there is, um, in my my perspective, a loss of the process. I like to leave some marks of the process. So, uh, what are called throwing rings as your hands are moving up that clay and bringing that clay up from the wheelhead to form it into a shape, 
what you're creating is a is a, a corkscrew effect and as you push that clay it has nowhere to go but up but leaving left behind so uh, the mark of your making is these concentric spirals that go up the the piece and and um, they can be as um, gross or delicate as you choose them to be two things that go into that one is uh, the speed at which you move if you are being very cavalier and moving quickly on the clay you're going to leave behind a long wide spiral because you're moving faster than the clay is traveling circular around the wheelhead and so you'll create a very open spiral a wide spiral if you move slowly you're going to overlap your own spirals because your hand is still in the same place that it was the last revolution and you can create those very fine those very fine spirals also how hard you're pressing against the clay uh, will be maybe the depth of how thick or how, how deep the waveform i guess would be so I'll tell you a quick story, then ask a question mm-hmm. related to that. I remember throwing, at at my level, this was a rather tall piece of ceramics. It was probably 12 inches tall, which when you're just beginning, that's, you have to start with a lot. That's a monumental. Lo- a lot of clay, <laughs> and you know, it. Yeah. so you, you work it up. And I thought, wow, I am so proud. That, man, this is this is cool. Look what I did. And then I kind of backed away from it a little bit. And I thought, this is terribly ugly. This is, and then, but then I started asking myself, okay, why is it ugly? I'm in control of this. I can make it wider or narrower. I can make it taller, shorter, fatter. It's totally in my control. As they say, this was wet clay in my hands. And then I started thinking about form and design and ratio and shapes. I started looking at, I, w- I became obsessed with Grecian urns from probably 2000 BC and forward. Mm-hmm. And I thought, why are these things, they were utilitarian. They were just buckets. They were ju- jugs basically for yes. wine and olives, but they were beautiful. So that was my, my first real understanding about all of those things that I just mentioned. So I, I tell students all the time, I learned more about drawing from throwing pots than I did going to drawing class. So when mm-hmm. did you when did you look at a couple of your pieces and say, well, okay, technically I have the ability to push this clay around, mm-hmm. but aesthetically I'm gonna have to think about what? So going back to that first experience as a junior in high school, because I went to such a small high school and because I had come from another school district with different uh, credit expectations I had some extra classes that I got to take in my senior year and I believe that my last semester of uh, of high school was entirely art classes <laughs> because I had already met all of wow. my requirements okay. um, I think that yeah. I didn't have the number of credits I needed but I had all of you know the the core classes I had to take so I was able to take <laughs> I don't even remember what they called it seminars or something I think it's what they called it at that time and uh, so I was able to spend probably three or four hours every day at the wheel in uh, my senior year. Second, was it second still that scene. same old broken down? They never replaced it. <laughs> they never replaced it. But as my skill increased, I was then able to start applying a- aesthetic choice. 
right? So I think about my children and in their mind, they have this picture of what it is that they want to draw, but they don't have the skill to, to execute on that vision. And um, as they grow, they, their skill increases to where the vision in their mind, that aesthetic that they're trying to achieve, they're able to achieve that with the skill. So I'm kind of talking around in a circle here, but that then translates to as my skill increased, as I was spending more time uh, doing it, also um, around that time was really kind of the beginning of, uh, of YouTube as a platform that people were actively putting videos up on. And there were a handful of more progressive ceramic artists and instructors who were realizing that they could use this as an educational platform and they were starting to put up videos and, and I'm thinking back, I mean, this was 2006, it was just the very beginning and there were people there that were then able to show me through, the, through this re recording how to influence the clay to achieve that vision that was in my mind. So that was really uh, when I was deciding, I wanna do this, like this is something I wanna do for a living. I enrolled in a in a, a state college here nearby in Kansas City, and that was you know the, in the fall. And enrolled in the studio production pottery program, and that's a whole lot of words that means a specific thing. It would be a full time potter specifically making functional pottery. And so there's a distinction here that I think your listeners would appreciate. Functional pottery is things that have a purpose and a use. So if you think of mugs, we've talked about mugs, bowls, plates, pie dishes, those sorts of things are all functional. They're made to be used. As opposed to? Non-functional pottery, which would be art type of a piece. And aesthetically a beautiful sculpture that you put on your end table or something. Absolutely. Which it's is completely legitimate and beautiful. Yeah, it, it is. Um, so I was going for that functional wear. And so studio production pottery focuses on making a thousand of the exact same thing when the exact same dimensions and they all match. Even if you still leave that, um, that remnant of the process where you can tell that it was made by a person, they all look the same. And uh, that's the production part of it. And so I was going to... For example, for that. that would be... David, I want you to make me a eight-piece dinnerware set. So you'd make cups, mm -hmm. saucers, platters, plates, anything, and it all looks like it was made for me. It's the same glaze, same size. They stack together. Yes, absolutely right. So the pieces all work hand. together. Yeah. All done by hand, yes. Almost becoming a replicator of a form. Once you have a form and you say, I'm going to replicate this form over and over and over again, and not just an eight-person dinner, dinnerware set, 50 eight-person eight dinnerware sets that all match. That's studio production pottery. And so that was where I think that my skill really, truly started to take off was uh, when I was in high school, wasn't really direct. I was self-directed, right? So I was working towards whatever Well, you were exploring, me. hopefully. That's, that's what... That's people a good way are, to put it. Young people are supposed to do. Let's look around. Let's explore. Yeah. I was exploring. That's a good way to put it. I was exploring pottery. I was exploring clay. Whatever interested me in the moment is what I was working on. 
And so moving into this more rigid and disciplined program at the college uh, forced me to start to work on the technical aspects of making pottery, not just does this feel good, but is it technically good? Is it consistently thick all of the way through? When you are making pottery, you cannot make it in its final form right there on the wheel. There is some post-processing that you have to do, specifically trimming. Once a piece is made, for example, a bowl, if you just were to take it off of the wheel and put it in a kiln and fire it, and it would come out as a vitrified stone, put the glaze on, fire it again, that fluxes the, the glaze, uh, leaving a glassy, glossy surface. If you were to do that, you would have a huge amount of material, clay material, left on the bottom of that bowl. And the reason being is when you throw, you have to leave supporting material. So if anyone's familiar with 3D printing, you can't make uh, a 3D printed object with like a large curvature without printing support material underneath it. The piece will collapse. It's the same with clay. And the other danger of leaving all that support material is it's a different thickness. And tell us what happens when, when, uh, when water gets hot. <laughs> it blows up. It blows. Yeah. It, so it turns water to steam expands. and it can't get out, and your pot will basically explode and destroy whatever's around it. So you lose ten pieces instead of one. That's true. That is true. It also leads to a heavy, visually non-interesting, non-inviting uh, piece. And so, like that post-processing, you have to actually take it off the wheel head after it's at a certain um, dryness level where. It, it won't deform when you touch it. We used to call that leather hard. Is that still the same that term? That is still the term, okay. yes. Yep, so at a leather hard stage, you can actually flip the piece over it, center it again on the wheel because concentricity matters. If you throw a piece and it's perfectly concentric, as in moving around a center central axis without wobble, if you were to flip it over, not bother to center it again, you've introduced a second center on the piece. And as you're trimming away excess material to get the lower half of your piece to its final form, if you're not working off of that same center, you're going to wind up trimming through one side of it because one side will be thicker than the other. Or Not if you don't, that you and I have ever done that. <laughs> I don't know about you, man, but last night I literally <laughs> went through a side of a piece because I did not have it exactly uh, center. And the work that I do now... We've all done it, yeah. Yeah, you know, the, the work that I do now, I am focused on creating light, beautiful forms. In my opinion, beautiful as in a soft curves. I don't do a lot of like hard-edged type of, of work. But part of that is I'm removing quite a bit of material in the lower half of my pieces when I'm trimming them. One little surprise that I like when I'm in a retail store or somewhere where I'm allowed to pick up ceramics, it's always interesting to go up and pick something up and find that it's much lighter than I thought it would be or much lighter than it looks. And that's what you're talking about. You're talking about not only this brute force caveman grunting clay formature. No, you're making it into something really aesthetic and you're pushing the limits of the support material, how thin you can make it, how light you can make it. Mm, that's true. And actually to go back to what you said about picking it up and being surprised, it's a pleasant surprise i don't think i've oh, ever very much yes very I've, much so. I've never 
been on the receiving end of someone picking it up and saying, oh, this is lighter than I thought, right? <laughs> that, that doesn't happen, right? Now, now, on the converse, I have seen people, and I've even made things, I'm like, ah, it's a little heavy, I don't, right? And people pick it up, and, and to encounter a piece of pottery and it visually to look a certain way, because you're ascribing that value in your mind, right? And you go to pick it up and, and, and to pick it up and say, oh my goodness, this is so much lighter than I thought it would have been. There's a joy there. People and, are- and immediately, even if you're not a potter, you know that that's a craftsman point. You know that that's well-crafted. Point of honor, yes. Yes, yes I, it is. I had an instructor that would go up to a lot of my vessels or pots or whatever that we were pulling out of the kill, and he'd always pick it up and he'd go, oh, oh, help me with this, which means, Brent, you didn't remove enough material. This thing mm-hmm. weighs 25,000 pounds. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to know you're great on this, so do better. Mm, that's true, yeah. So as I've progressed over the years, and I don't think that we've mentioned, well, we mentioned it kind of, um, at a certain point I realized that doing pottery full-time wasn't going to be the right direction for my family. I had gotten married young. When you're young, you don't know how to plan family. We had kids. And, it, and I realized, you know, doing, doing pottery full-time is not going to put my family where I want us to be, at least not for a long time. So I did make that switch over to a business degree graduated with a business degree, and then went into uh, software. So over the last decade of, um, of married life and uh, doing pottery when I, had the, when I had the time, I've really moved into a space now where the work that I'm making isn't production. I'm not going for, you know, that 50 sets of eight-person table settings anymore. Really, I'm exploring the more artistic side and I'm being really gentle with these words here because I'm not talking through like you know making sculptures and making these these large obviously no one's ever going to use it platters type of uh, artistic work but the more artistic side of functional pottery so the things that I make I always try to be intentional with what is the intended use of this I want my pottery to be something that people hold in their hands or that people are putting onto a table to show. And as I'm doing that, I'm trying to use that language of design and that language of of uh, um, beauty in the clay itself. So I'm I mentioned earlier, you know, I try to make things with soft curves or a really subtle foot or a subtle lip, not anything that's going to to be striking. Because I'm not trying to make pottery that people just want to look at. I want to make pottery that people touch and people want to engage with. I'm kind of going back to you know that 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 user experience and software as we're trying to make software that people are comfortable using and uh, intuitively flow through the happy path that we've laid out. It's the same with pottery. I'm trying to make pottery that people intuitively know how to use, and as they pick it up and hold it in their hands, they're delighted in what they have, and there's nothing on that piece of pottery that's going to take them out of the experience. So that goes back to um, consistent thicknesses, uh, lighter than expected weight, soft curves, that sort of stuff. I love what you said about you like to make pieces that people instinctively know how to use. And those words don't go lightly with me. I think that's a really great commentary to use 
And the reason is, I heard a TED talk not too long ago, and this person said, the greatest electronic device ever devised by man so far is the radio. It's not the computer, because a radio has two buttons on it. You turn it on, and you find what you want to listen to. A computer has a different job. It's vastly superior to that mm-hmm. in a million ways. But he, ju- he mentioned, if you can build a computer that has two buttons on it and can do whatever it's supposed to do, that would be really interesting. And of course, those are two different items. You know, every, every uh, machine has its function, I guess. Mm-hmm. But your pottery, you, want, you don't want me to go up and say, I wonder what that is. <laughs> That's you true. want me to know. This I is want you cup. to know. This is a vessel. I'm supposed to drink out of this. I put my apples in this, whatever. That's absolutely true. So having that intentionality behind each piece that I make is important. It's also important to me that it evokes a certain sense of place. I mentioned earlier about movement captured. A lot of the stuff that I, that I make, I leave those marks on it. So you can see the process of it being made and the the spiraling of the clay as it goes up. Even if I have to artificially reintroduce it at the end, as I'm using the tools, you mentioned ribs earlier. Ribs are firm pieces of either wood or metal or some people even use credit cards. Uh, Something that allows you to compress the clay in and also remove the wet, loose pieces of clay is called slip. As I've used those tools, it does remove the, the marks of making. It smooths that clay out. And so there are times where I will go back and reintroduce a little bit of a spiral into the clay to show that process. You talked a little bit earlier that um, first you wanted to be the production potter, then things happened with life, which are all good, positive things that you described. And then you decided, okay, well, let's go more toward the artistic part, which Mm -hmm. again brings us back full circle to this idea of language an idea because first you threw the clay on the wheel you had no idea what to do and you had no language on how to do it you had no mm-hmm. uh, you had no facile skills now you're to the point where you have these great skills that you can introduce into your ideas so I think that's a really good dovetail of having an idea now you have the ability to communicate it with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say now I'm at a point in uh, with skill where there's not much that is outside of my ability. I think where I'm limited now is twofold. One is how big do I want to think? Meaning the scale of the piece. The scale of the piece, but also... I'm limited more by more by my ideas than I am by my skill. I can most of the time accomplish what it my idea is in my mind. I think that I'm limited sometimes by the amount of time that I spend considering what it is that I want to make. That's something that I've been trying to be much more intentional with in the last three months. When I sit down at the wheel, I'm trying to have an idea of what I want to make before I start making. Do you sketch or draw anything or uh, do you just conjure something in your mind and say this is the shape that I'm going to try to do you know I tried the sketchbook method and uh, wound up just getting far too involved with the drawing and the shape and the dimensions and 
and uh, then almost getting back into a mindset of that production of just replicating this this uh, image or like this you know this template replicating the template I find I receive a lot more creative happiness I guess in having a concept in my mind thinking through the shape that I want to produce and the uh, ratios of you know the neck of the piece if it's a closed form versus the shoulder you know the belly and the foot putting those pieces together in my mind forming that shape and then actually going through mentally before I even touch a piece of clay what are the sequence of moves that I will need to do in order to accomplish that which might go back to being a project manager <laughs> of always thinking through sequentially what are the steps that I have to accomplish perform to accomplish my my outcome well i think all artists need to do that on some level because if you're mm -hmm. an oil painter you have to think of okay first i'm going to start with you know you have to paint fat over lean you have to block in big shapes first you have to go from dark to light watercolorists are the complete opposite so for you to think about your uh the delineation of what you need to do with the clay i think that's completely advisable that's fair that's fair. I don't have enough conversations like this with artistic people. I'm actually really enjoying this. Uh, just well, me too. Just talking. <laughs> just talking art. Talking shop. You know perhaps the name Dale Chihuly. Yes. Glassblower. Yes, I do. He used to be based in Seattle. I don't know if he's still there. But he had a huge studio. And long ago there was a documentary, and I'm talking about actually made on film probably 30 years ago. And he had this huge table. This is going back to, I was asking if you had any drawings or sketching mm -hmm. propensities for making your shapes. And he had this huge table and his big pad of paper. And he had everything I think devised by man that you could make a mark with. Mm. And he would just like mix it all up. And then he would just grab this big handful of stuff and just abstractly, he looked like a little kid. Yeah, He looked like a three-year-old coloring. Then he would grab his other hand, which I don't know if he was right or left-handed. He would grab the other hand, make more marks. He would like cover it up with something and scrape through it. And then it became this abstract mess to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And he'd say, okay, I got our next piece. Here's what we're gonna do. And he would, and maybe he would do 20 of those mm -hmm. before he got to this idea of this abstraction of color and design and form and shape. And I thought, man, I. I would love to try that sometime, but I didn't have any way to really go back into the third dimension with it because I haven't done pottery in a long time. But And you mentioned the almighty YouTube a little bit ago. Maybe that Dale Chihuly documentary is out there somewhere, and I would love to see that again. Mm, I have seen that documentary Oh, you as have? Well. Okay. I have. And uh, that, I mean, it is quite the creative process. Uh, he has access to the materials in order to to uh, I think dive into that more being someone that does this as a, a you know a personal endeavor not professionally if that makes sense I do keep you know the the operation small and on purpose I've, oh he and yeah. to describe this to listeners he has a I mean a studio the size of a warehouse yes. you know there's probably three or four furnaces I don't think he is touched a piece of glass in 20 years he, he has, has 10 full-time 10 full-time people right. uh you know or more jeff yeah. coons a la jeff coons kind of thing because he has the idea and he mm -hmm. says okay you are my studio professionals 
you execute this for me. That's that is true. Yeah, he's he's the um, he's the creator. Mm-hmm. He's the creator of the concept. Yes, he is the executive chef. Oftentimes, the executive <laughs> yes. chef doesn't cook the catfish. No, but they're the ones that put the flavor profiles together. And Absolutely, that's a good way to put it. Make it worth a lot more money. <laughs> <laughs> which uh, which Jahuli's uh, pieces are worth a lot of money. David, if someone wants to continue their investigation or education, or if there's someone that maybe ran across this podcast and thought, wow, I wonder what this potter's wheel and this ceramicist business is all about, what kind of resources can you point them to? So as I was talking earlier about how some of the initial resources available to me were coming from YouTube and coming from those educators who were putting stuff up, that platform has flourished for ceramic artists. And if you were to go to YouTube and just type in potter's wheel or pottery or throwing pottery, whatever you want to type in in those keyword type of things, you're going to find resources like crazy. I mean, even people who are doing it, um, you know, as an expressive outlet like myself, they're recording themselves now. I mean, access to that is, is so easy recording themselves and putting up videos on YouTube, instructional, or even just showing the process or talking about the pottery, talking about the business of pottery. So YouTube, fantastic resource for anyone that's curious. And then and, also- and to take it on another level, if you didn't have a potter's wheel, you could type in slab or slab construction, and you can, you can start making things without a potter's wheel. That's true. Which is the way you started, actually. That was my first introduction to clay, yes. Okay. Another resource that I have found the most beneficial for myself is the platform Instagram. The community of potters on Instagram is pretty tight. Most of the people who are active on Instagram doing pottery recognize uh, each other and can even recognize each other's work out in the wild. There are two people on Instagram that I would suggest checking out. One is Jono Smart and the other one is Florian Gadsby. Those two men are both in the UK and are producing probably at the highest level of uh, potters on Instagram right now as far as uh, the forms, uh, the intentionality behind what they're making, as well as uh, just being very engaged in the community. Um, I see them answering questions of people who don't know anything about clay but stumble upon their, uh, their profiles. I see them answering questions all the time, interacting I would definitely plug those two, those two gentlemen. I will, of course, put your Instagram handle on my website, but go ahead and tell us what that is now for just to make it easy for people. Yeah. Uh, so I do post my work on Instagram under the handle Walnut Creek Pottery. Uh, no spaces, just Walnut Creek Pottery, one word. And if anyone is thinking about trying to start their own studio, any last minute words of advice? I mean, what kind of outlay of, of money? Let's say, oh man, I just, I want to make a, a slab ashtray <laughs> for, for Aunt Jenny. I mean, I've got to go buy clay, maybe a couple of tools. How can I get started? No, you're talking $30 to get in the door, a bag of clay that you can get at any art supply store and um, maybe a couple of just basic tools. But honestly, you can use an old butter knife from your kitchen if you really wanted to cut and shape the clay and you want to do it on the cheap. The only thing that you would need is access to a kiln 
Uh, the kiln is the specialized oven that's used for transforming that clay, vitrifying it into stone. That is a required step. I would suggest anyone that's interested look into local clay studios. Here in Kansas City, we have the Kansas City Clay Guild. It's a fantastic resource for people who can show up, pay a couple of dollars as a cover charge to get in, and then have access to tables, wheels, tools, kilns, even glazes. So they can get started on that journey or maybe pick that, pick that, that interest back up if they wanted to and not have to buy everything out of pocket. Well, David, this has been a fantastic conversation and from my point of view, and I enjoyed the software and the way it tied into your replication of making delineated steps and your thought processes in your ceramics. And I want to say thank you for sharing these great stories and good words of advice. My pleasure.